grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a tough reading from Mark's Gospel today. It really is. People have struggled with the meaning of Jesus' instructions here for a long, long time. Tradition has it that an early church teacher named Origen struggled with a certain body part that will not be named to the point that he castrated himself. While this is probably not actually true, but rather a dig against him, it's certainly a text that makes us squirm in our seats a little bit. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Likewise, with your foot or eyes, anything that causes you to sin, you'd be better off without it. What do you make of such a statement? We believe in the authority of Scripture and its inerrancy and its inspiration, but what do you do with this? Perhaps we should zoom out a little bit and see what's going on here. We're in the middle of Mark's gospel, and for the last month or so, we've encountered the teachings of Jesus about what makes a person clean or unclean, sinful or righteous. It's an inside-out sort of thing. You see, the Pharisees were super concerned about doing all of the right stuff to make sure that they were right with God. And Jesus says, it's more about the heart. It's all about the heart. It's about faith. A pure heart is the source of righteous deeds. A rotten heart is the source of sinful deeds. So in Mark's gospel, it's been a whirlwind of activity and commotion for the disciples. Peter, James, and John had just seen Jesus in all of his transfigured glory. The disciples had argued among themselves about which one of them was the greatest. The other nine had failed to cast a demon out of a boy, and Jesus set a child in the midst of them as an example of true greatness in the kingdom of God. And then, wouldn't you know it, John pipes up and says, Teacher, sound like an elementary school tattletale. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. What the heck? The disciples had this idea that they were special and unique. Obviously, Jesus had chosen them for a reason. They were privy to all sorts of special power and information that the general public wasn't. We tried to stop him because he wasn't part of our crew. He wasn't one of us. Doesn't that seem a lot like the way things are today? Those people, they aren't part of our group. They shouldn't be doing that thing. Churches competing against churches Pastors competing against pastors. It's one thing to have real doctrinal disagreements. It's another to engage in outright rivalry. The disciples tried to stop this guy from casting out demons because they thought they were the ones who could do it. Plain and simple. But if they truly understood that he was doing so in the name of Jesus, they'd also recognize that Jesus' power was the true power at work. 
How often do we struggle with this idea that it's all about us? How often are we so convinced that we're better qualified, we know better, we're the ones who are really doing the work of God's kingdom? Jesus responds to them and to us, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The Pharisees and the disciples had something in common. They thought that it was all about them and what they were doing. This anonymous exorcist in Mark's gospel was casting out demons in Jesus' name because that's what followers of Jesus do. They serve God by serving their neighbor. Casting out demons in the context here isn't a point of personal pride or a display of power. It is an act of mercy here and in every place in Mark's gospel. Followers of Jesus bring with them the power of God to improve the lives of their neighbors in any way that they can. This is why Jesus connects exorcism and sharing a cup of water. It's not about the act itself that matters. It's because it is the people of God doing the work of God in the lives of those who need it. So after this, Jesus returns to his discussion of the greatest in the kingdom, little children. Children are great because they are least. Children do nothing but receive the kindness and mercy of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to sin, whether that's literal children or whoever might be considered small in the eyes of the world, it would be better to have a giant millstone hung around the neck and be thrown into the sea. The ministry and mission of Jesus are first and foremost about faith. Creating and strengthening faith in the Son of God. If in our endless quest for self-righteousness and religiosity, we end up actually harming the faith of the faithful, we'd be better off dead. Imagine if the world's largest Christian denomination would take this truth to heart. What more are the abuses present in the Church of Rome than the attempts to destroy the faith of the faithful? What more is the abuse of a child by a priest than a literal cause of sin and disbelief for the actual little ones? It is positively demonic. In the quest for self-righteousness and religiosity, the Roman church instituted a doctrine that causes nothing but harm for the faithful and for priests alike. And all of this because a great distinction was made between the so-called secular and sacred. It's as if to say that saying mass and preaching homilies and doing religious things are more pleasing to God than loving your neighbor. This is why Luther would later remark that one mother does more good works in a day than a thousand monks in a lifetime. 
that every mother in Saxony of his day serves God more than every bishop. You see, God does not need our good works. Our neighbor does. And our neighbors include those very nearest to us. Our children, grandchildren, our families, our friends. Who is more precious to God than a little child? Jesus says a nasty drowning would be highly preferable to what awaits those who destroy faith. So, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be crippled in this life than to go two-handed into hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell both feet first. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to live with one eye than to have two eyes beholding the horrors of hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Are you starting to understand what Jesus is saying? If, in fact, any of these body parts are the cause of your sin, get rid of them immediately. But if you've been following Mark's gospel thus far, I think you're beginning to see that none of these body parts causes sin. Hands don't do a whole lot on their own. Neither do feet. Even eyes require a direct connection to the brain to accomplish anything at all. In fact, none of your body parts are truly the causes of your sin. It's your heart. Your mind, as we would say it today. King David prayed thus in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Blaming one of your body parts is a cop-out. Own up and take some responsibility for your actions. Your hand didn't do it. Your foot didn't do it. Your eye didn't do it. You chose to do it. If there's anything that needs to be cut off, it's the heart, or as we might describe it today, the mind. Cut it off. But that's not really possible, is it? There's a word in the New Testament and the Old Testament used to describe precisely what is needed here. The word in Greek is metanoia. It means change mind. We usually translate this, repent. And this all sounds well and good for us, assuming that we're the ones doing the action. But we, what we don't quite grasp is the fact that this concept is not active, it's passive. Change mind does not mean that we change our minds, but that our minds are changed from outside of our own doing. It happens to us. When you hear the term repent, don't you usually have this idea that it's up to you to make some change? Give up what you're doing and turn around the other way? You could cut off every limb on your body and still not have the strength to stop sinning. It's not possible within our own power. The disciples once asked the question of Jesus, who then can be saved? His reply, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, it is not you 
who repent of your sin, but God repents you. St. Paul writes in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It comes from the outside of us to the inside. How does unsalty salt become salty again? It can't. How do we transform our minds to be in alignment with the mind of God? We can't. How can we keep from sinning with our own strength and wherewithal? We can't. We can't save ourselves. Our religiosity avails us of nothing before God. Our self-righteousness is not righteousness at all. It is nothing more than the worship of self and the religion established by Satan in Eden. Ye shall be like God. And yet nothing could be less godlike than this worship of self. We are in need of saving from outside of ourselves. We are in need of repentance from outside of ourselves. And I love the way that the old King James Version states this in the words of Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Turn thou me, turn me, and I'll be turned. So before you start hacking off limbs, let's get to the real root of the problem. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There is one who is cut off completely in your place. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his, his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus took upon himself every bit of sin and wretchedness. Every bit of our pride, our sinful pride, our rebellious minds, our self-righteousness, the entirety of sin itself, and put it to death. All of the times that you have opposed God in your own pride, that sin was put to death on the cross. <coughs> Every time you've sinned by what you've done or left undone, Jesus died for that too. And in place of your sin and wretchedness, Jesus gives you his very own righteousness. He gives you faith to receive it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you a, a new heart and a new mind, a heart of flesh in place of your heart of stone, a renewed mind in place of your darkened mind. He gives you everything that he is in exchange for everything that you have failed to be. Your salt is restored, and he has made peace for you by the blood of his cross. 
peace with God and peace with each other. He was cut off from the land of the living so that you never will be. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Would you rise as we confess that faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty. 